Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to welcome all of you who are here to tonight. Thank you for coming, and I hope you've had a blessed week, and the rest of the week is a good week. I want to welcome all of those, uh, all who are tuning in by Ustream, uh, YouTube, and Sermon Audio video to our Tuesday evening Bible study, Ephesians chapter 2. Let's begin with appealing to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that he's the way, the truth, the life, all of our hope, all of our righteousness, all of our salvation is in him. As you have told us in your word, this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Pray that your spirit tonight will lead us as we seek the truth revealed in your word through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray for his sake. Amen. The book of Ephesians is a wonderful, wonderful book. And many, many years ago, I talked through it verse by verse. I think in the Bible classes on Sunday morning, Brother Turner, Dr. Foster have talked through it. One of the most more famous verses, I suppose, in the Bible is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, probably all of you know what I'm about to tell you here, the first 14 verses of chapter 1, the first 14 verses of chapter 1 is one sentence. One sentence. You'll find semicolons and commas and all that, but you won't find a period until you get to the end of verse 14. You'll notice he says there in those famous verses, Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of you know, who have worshipped here for a while, that I have explained to you that the word blessed is ex exagamai, which is a word from which we get our word eulogy. When you eulogize someone at a funeral, you say a good word about them. So what he says here, he says in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, Let's say a good word about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has said a good word about us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He has predestinated us, verse 5, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. It's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. And He has made us accepted in the Beloved, which is in Christ. In Christ we have redemption, verse 7, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, again, according to the riches of His grace. And in this grace through Christ, He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. That is, He has revealed unto us having made known unto us, verse 9, the mystery of his will, the mystery of the salvation by grace through faith in the Messiah, who is Jesus. And this is all according to the good pleasure of his will, which he purposed in himself. 
And he goes right on down. He talks about he's going to gather all things together in Christ. In verse 10, we have an, uh, obtained an inheritance. Verse 11, this inheritance is predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things. That is all things. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. And uh, this is all that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. We trusted in Christ. We heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. And we believed and we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest. The same word there translated earnest is like a pledge. It's the word uh, that uh, connotes when you buy a house or a car and they say, would you like to put down a little earnest money? That's what it is. It's the earnest. It's the guarantee. It's the down payment of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchase possession under the praise of His glory. Now you see that in all of these verses you have a strong emphasis on the grace of God. And I remember telling you this story several times years ago of John Riesinger uh, who was witnessing to a man and uh, he said to this brother, he said, now, you believe you're saved by the grace of God, don't you? He said, oh, yes, sir, I believe you're saved by the grace of God. He said, but I just don't see it the way you see it, John. And he said, well, let me read to you a passage of Scripture, and I won't make any comment. I'll just read it to you. He said, okay. So he read the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1, which speaks about predestination, speaks about election, speaks about God working everything after his counsel of his own will, all of that, and he just read it. And he said to the man, now, do you believe that? And his response was, well, not the way you read it. <laughs> now, what that tells us is this. When you go to the scripture, you have a certain set of presuppositions. Presupposition means you presuppose certain things. As Dr. Cornelius Van Til used to say, you have a certain set of glasses, and whatever color those glasses are, that's what everything looks like to you. If you have blue glasses, you see everything is blue. I can tell you that this notebook is red. You say it looks blue to me. And so what happens in salvation is God gives us a new pair of glasses. He gives us a new set of eyes. He gives us a new set of ears. And we begin to see things we haven't seen before, and to hear things we haven't heard before, and to understand things we haven't understood before. And we see that all of our salvation is wrapped up in the sovereign will of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he gets to chapter 2, he says, you all were dead in sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the old King James Version says he has quickened. On oh, old word, it means he has made you alive. He has quickened you. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I wish I had the time, but not tonight, to give you all the implications of that deadness he just says you were dead in trespasses and sins. You weren't necessarily dead morally. You certainly were not dead uh, physically. You may not have been dead socially, but you were dead spiritually. And spiritual death has lots of connotations and definitions. 
For example, the word death, if you go back and get your dictionary and trace the etymological root of the word death, you will see that it comes down to a word that means to separate. So you go to a funeral and you go up to the casket and there's a body in there and you look at that body and you know that that person is not at home. You can look at that body and there's something's gone, something is missing. And the thing that is missing is the person. That's the body, that's the tabernacle, that's the temple that they lived in in this world, but they are not here. They have been separated from their body. And that's what happens at the moment of death. You're separated from your body. So according to the scriptures, we have been separated from God. You remember Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden? The Lord separated himself from them in the sense that he drove them out of the Garden of Eden and he set up a sword to keep them from going in and eating of the tree of life. Because if they had eaten of the tree of life in that fallen condition, there would have been no possibility, as far as we know, no possibility of redemption. So he drove them out of the Garden of Eden. They had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that they could not eat of the tree of life, they were driven out of the garden. And since man fell, we, his, the children of Adam and Eve, we act just like they do. The first thing they did, of course, when they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden was they ran from God. They were fearful of him. They tried to hide from him before they had fellowship with him. Now they're fearful of him. Men are still fearful. And that's why using science, using philosophy, using everything they can, we try to reason away God. Because if we can get away from God, we don't know him, we're afraid of him. And uh, we think maybe, you know, by sticking your head in the sand like the proverbial ostrich, it'll go away. But it won't. We have to meet him. So this death is called death in trespasses and sins in verse 2. So we're dead in trespasses and sins. Now this death manifests itself in us by the way we live. So in verse 2, in time past, that is before you were made alive, before you were quickened, before you came to know who the true and living God is, you walked, this was your manner of life, verse 2, Ephesians 2, you walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air. That would be the devil. That would be Lucifer. The spirit that is now working in all the children of disobedience. And he said, we all had, verse 3, the old King James Version says conversation. We all had our conversation. It's translated that way because if you listen to what a person says, you can tell what they think. You can tell what they believe. You can tell where they are if you just listen to him long enough. But conversation is manner of life. We all had our manner of life in time past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, of the mind, we were by nature. By nature, we were the children of wrath. That means we were under the wrath of God. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He that believes on the Son has life. He that believes not on the Son is under the wrath of God. So every person that's living in this world who has not believed on the Son of God is under the wrath of God. 
All of this turns around with two things. Verse 4, but God. Notice it doesn't say, but the sinner. It doesn't say, but I made a decision. It doesn't say, but I did this. No, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. He has raised us up together. That is, we have had a spiritual resurrection. Verse 6, he has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Christ is in heaven. We are in heaven in him. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace, literally, have you been saved. King James Version says, for by grace are you saved, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves, that faith is the gift of God. Faith itself is a manifestation of the grace of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are not saved by good works. We are saved in order to live in a way that's pleasing to him. God ordained this, that we should walk in them. So these verses, and we could go on with some of these other verses in chapters 2 and 3, all emphasize that we're saved, we're reconciled, we're redeemed, we're brought to God by grace. Okay? Now, years ago, I read two statements that I'm going to read to you now. Some of you will remember these two statements and some of you won't, but I'm going to use them for this particular study. I probably all of you have heard of the great English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Mr. Spurgeon died in 1892. Uh, he was something like 58, 59 years of age when he died. He had a most uh, profound ministry. Uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher, a friend of mine who is going to be with the Lord, put Mr. Spurgeon in print. And you can buy 52 volumes uh, of Mr. Spurgeon's works, and you'll have everything that ever came out of his mouth in those 52 volumes. My father, my dad, I gave my dad a copy of Morning and Evening by Spurgeon. There's a morning reading and there's an evening reading. And uh, so my dad enjoyed him so much that so when I came home one day from a trip preaching, having been preaching somewhere, there were a bunch of boxes on my, on my front, at my front door. I got him inside and opened them up, and he, he bought me those 52 volumes of Spurgeon's uh, tabernacle, pulpit, and all the rest of it. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Quote, this is a quote from Spurgeon. I will go as far as Martin Luther in that strong assertion of his, where he says, if any man ascribes any of salvation, even the very least, to the will of man, he knows nothing about grace, and he has not learned Jesus Christ 
All right. He goes on to say, quote, It may seem a harsh sentiment, but he who in his soul believes that man does of his own will turn to God cannot have been taught of God, for that is one of the first principles taught us, that we ourselves have neither will nor power, but that he gives both, that he is the Alpha and the Omega in the salvation of men, end of quote. Quite a, quite a statement. Now, nearly a century later, in 1966, evangelist Billy Graham wrote in the Standard Bearer Baptist publication. This is a quote from Billy Graham. Quote, unfortunately, God has no power over the will of man. That is to say, he cannot save a person against his will, but at the same time, he's not willing that any should perish. He has made it possible for all men to be saved. But the Bible indicates that salvation depends upon man's willingness to be saved. It would be a kind of tyranny if God saved people against their will, end of quote. Now, obviously, something is wrong, or more specifically, someone is wrong. Uh, these two well-known men are diametrically opposed in their opinions of God's will and man's will. Mr. Spurgeon says that the man or woman who ascribes salvation to the will of man knows nothing of grace and has not learned Jesus Christ aright. Mr. Graham says that it is unfortunate, but God has no power over the will of man, that God cannot save a person against his will, and to do so would constitute a kind of tyranny. Well, let me say this first of all. Nobody is ever saved against their will. Nobody's ever saved against their will. Psalm 110 verse 3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. So when a dead man starts talking, do you think he gave himself life or did something precede that talking? When Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, the brother of Martha and Mary. Uh, remember, they sent a word to the Lord Jesus. Let's just turn over there. I don't know how far we'll get tonight, <laughs> but we'll continue it next week. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. Gospel of John, chapter 11. Hadn't, hadn't intended to go in there, but most of you are familiar with this story. And there was a certain man sick, John 11, verse 1. His name was Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus was the brother of Martha and Mary. So in verse 3 of John 11, they sent to Jesus and they said, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now I want you to notice the language here. It didn't say, Lord, the one who loves you is sick. It said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Okay. The emphasis is on the love of Christ for Lazarus, not on the love of Lazarus for Christ, although Lazarus loved Christ. But it's not the love of Lazarus that saves him, it's the love of Christ that saves him. 
Okay, we love him because what? Because he first loved us. Okay. Now, when Jesus heard that in verse 4, he told all those disciples, get things together. We got to get there in a hurry. That's not what he did. What he did was he stayed exactly where he was. It tells us quickly in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and he loved Lazarus. But when he heard that Lazarus was sick, verse 4, he said, this sickness is not unto death, it's for the glory of God. And it's that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. When he had heard, notice the inspiration of the scriptures now, verse 6. When he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the same place where he was. When he heard he was sick. He deliberately waited. He did not run over to Lazarus. He stayed where he was. And what happened uh, during that process, in that process of time, Lazarus died. After that, verse 7, he said, let's go to Judea, Judea again. And uh, his disciples, of course, were afraid of going there. And he was not. And so he said, uh, Lazarus is sleeping, verse 11. And they said, oh, well, the doctor must have gone by and said, take a couple of aspirin, drink water, and get a lot of rest. Because he's sleeping. No, he said, look, Lazarus is dead. See, in verse 11, he says, Lazarus is sleeping. But I go that I may awake him out of his sleep. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll do well. He's doing well. That's what you're supposed to do when you get sick. You know, you're supposed to rest. But see, what I've told you many, many times, never is it said in the Word of God that a saint of God dies. A saint of God falls asleep. People that do not know the Lord die. They die a double death. They die in their body. And they die because they are eternally separated. Remember that word death to separate? They're eternally separated from God. So he said to them plainly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there, verse 15. To the intent that you may believe, nevertheless let us go. All right. So Lazarus is dead. How in the world can he be made alive again? If you went to Lazarus and you said, Lazarus, look, I know you don't want to be in this casket. I know you don't want to be in this tomb. I know you don't want to have a funeral. Wiggle your little toe. Do something. Let me know. And we'll get you out of there. But Lazarus is dead. He can't hear. He can't see. He can't speak. He can't reason. He can't understand. He's dead. And so when Jesus gets to the tomb... Martha and Mary, of course, came out, both of them, and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So I told you that never is it said that a believer dies, believers fall asleep. Number two, no one ever died in the presence of Jesus Christ. No one ever died. He's life. And when you're, when you're around him, you are alive. You are alive spiritually and you alive in other ways. Nobody ever died in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So when he got to the tomb, he said in verse 39, take away the tomb. Now everybody was saying the same thing that most people would say. Verse 37, they said, look, this man opened the eyes of the blind. Couldn't he have prevented this man that he loved 
from dying, verse 37, yes, he could have. And that's why, as I say, nobody ever died in the presence of Christ. And so if Christ had gotten there while Lazarus was sick, he wouldn't have died. He would not have died. So he stayed where he was and he let him die. He deliberately let him die because he said this death is for the glory of God and the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So when they got there, he said, take away the stone, verse 39. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't want to make too much of, of, of things because we can imply all kinds of things from these teachings. But verse 39 does tell us that we ought to remove any impediments that we can remove between the soul and Christ. This Lazarus is in a tomb and there's a stone there. And Jesus could have just spoken the word and the stone could have rolled away. Or he could have spoken the word and crushed the stone, pulverized it, made it, but he didn't. He said, you take the stone away. And that, to me, that says we ought to remove all the impediments that we can remove between the soul and Christ, between Christ and the gospel. Let's remove as much as we can. A lot of times we get in the way ourselves and we need to get out of the way. Take away the stone. And Martha said, now, Lord, by this time, his body is stinking. Verse 39, because he's been dead for four days. How many times have I told you that the Jewish people were very, very suspicious and they believed that the spirit of a person stayed around the body for three or four days seeking to enter back in to that body. So the Lord overthrows that idea by staying away for four days. And Martha is concerned it's got, there's going to be a bad odor because he's been dead four days. This begin, corruption will begin to set in. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you'd believe you'd see the glory of God? They took away the stone, verse 41. And the first thing he does, he thanks the Father in heaven, verse 41, I thank thee, you have heard me. I know that you hear me always, but because of the people who stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. And then when he had spoken with a loud voice, he said, Lazarus, or with a loud voice, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Now notice, he doesn't tell Lazarus to do anything except come forth. So my question is, if this man is dead, how can he respond to this command? Well, of course, he cannot unless he has life. Life must precede action. Life must precede faith. Life must precede repentance. All of these things that we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, all of these things are the effects or the results of life. When we were dead, we walked according to the course of this world. But when the Lord quickened us, then we walk after Christ. We love Christ. We find ourselves interested in Christ. We want to learn more about Christ. We want to worship somewhere where somebody will tell us more about Christ. We don't want to be like Israel when they were in the wilderness and the manna came down and they said, we're sick of this manna. Jesus said in the New Testament, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and they are dead, but my father gives you that true manna. I'm the bread of life. And if you get tired of eating the bread of life, you got a real problem. 
We don't ever get tired of hearing about Christ and his love for us and what he's done. So my point is, if we use the Lazarus physical death to illustrate spiritual death, you see that coming to know Christ and trusting in Christ is nothing short of a miracle. It is a miracle. It is absolutely a miracle from God that a dead sinner would be made alive and the effect of that is faith in Christ, repentance, wanting to walk with the Lord, all of these things. Do we stumble? Yes. We may stumble, we may wander, we may even be like, you know, I've compared it to the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River runs from the north to the south, and it runs this way and ends that way, and it runs this way, and sometimes it even runs backwards. But the proclivity of the Mississippi River is toward the south. And that's the way it is with a child of God. Abraham was a child of God, wasn't he? But he wandered down into Egypt. But the Lord brought him back. The prodigal son was a child of God. And he wandered out and got into pig men, but he didn't stay in the pig men. He came back home to the Father. And children of God sometimes wander here and wander there, but if, if they belong to him, he will bring us back, sometimes by severe discipline. So we go back to these statements by uh, Charles Spurgeon and Billy Graham. So I have made this first point, and that is that God never saves a person against their wills, but what he does is he changes your will. Psalm 110, verse 3, quoted again, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. The willingness is preceded by the power of God that comes upon them, gives them a willingness, and they express that willingness in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, let me upset the apple cart a little bit. <laughs> Number two point. Number one, God never saves a person against their will. He gives them a will. He changes their will. He makes their will alive. He gives them an antenna. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he understand them. They have to be spiritually discerned. So he says they receive not. And I've often said if you don't have an AM receiver on your automobile, you can't receive an AM radio station. And if you don't have an FM receiver, you can't receive an FM. If you don't have a Sirius receiver, you can't receive anything from Sirius radio. And we are dead. One of the, one of the, uh, the uh, effects or fruits of being dead in sin is we don't have a receiver. You don't have a receiver. You can't receive if you, unless you have a receiver. So when God imparts life, when Christ comes to us, he had to go to Lazarus where Lazarus was. Lazarus really couldn't go to where he was. He went to Lazarus. He called Lazarus by name. The scripture says that those whom the Lord calls, right, one of the favorite verses is what? All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are the called according to his good pleasure. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I contend that you call on the Lord because he's calling you. 
If we love him, it's because he first loved us. If we call him, it's because he's calling us. Okay? In the Garden of Eden, after Adam sinned, did he call on God or did God call on him? Adam, where are you? I heard your voice and I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I told you not to eat of that. Oh, yes, but the woman you gave me. That's my problem. I was real happy right here without her. But now you gave me a woman, and the woman you gave me, he's blaming God for his problem. Using Eve. The woman you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. So what I'm trying to tell you this morning is this thing of salvation is by grace. The Lord does change your will. He changes your will by changing your willer. He changes you and you have a will that wants to come to Christ. Here's the second point. I'm convinced that there will be some men and women in heaven who were wrong on some doctrines. I think the Apostle Paul, and I ended the, the study this past Sunday, quoting Paul when he said, I know whom I have believed. The emphasis was on the person of Christ, not on just the doctrine. I know whom I have believed, not just I know what I've believed, I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Now here's another old story that I've mentioned many times. Charles Spurgeon, now I want you to keep in mind that strong statement that he made. I will go as far as Martin Luther in that strong assertion of his where he says, if any man ascribes any of salvation, even the very least, to the will of man, he knows nothing of grace. He has not learned Jesus Christ to write. That's a strong statement. Then Spurgeon turns right around. How many of you know what Wesleyanism is, a Wesleyan Arminianism? You might not know what that is. John and Charles Wesley were what we call Arminians. Jacob Arminius was a person who believed in the sovereign grace of God. And after he studied under a certain theologian named Kuhnhurt, he became convinced that God uh, doesn't, he, he, he would agree with Billy Graham. <laughs> he would agree with Billy Graham after that. Jacob Arminius. And so there began to be a debate between those who were called Augustinians and those who were called Arminians. Well, Wesley, John and Charles Wesley were called Arminians and they believed that God, like Billy Graham says here, uh, Billy Graham said it is unfortunate. Unfortunately, God has no power over the will of man. Now, I personally, even if I were an Arminian, I would never make a statement like that. That is, that's too strong. <laughs> I just wouldn't make that statement. There's too many evidences in the Bible. You take Abraham, who's the father of the faithful. Where was he? Well, he was lost in heathenism. The Bible tells us in the book of uh, judges that his father was an idol maker. 
He was in a land of polytheism. You know what poly means? More than one. Polytheism means many gods. Hinduism, Buddhism, all of those, they have lots of gods. So what in the world changed for Abraham? I know you won't believe this. You'll think I'm making this up. But I, I studied years ago some Jewish rabbis to see what, how they would explain the salvation of Abraham. And what they said was, they said Abraham was intellectually superior and he figured it out. There was just one God. And that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that God called Abraham. He called him and he said, you leave your family and you leave your land and, you, and you're going to go to a land that I'm going to show you. God called him. And all through the scripture, you have God calling people. And it's not because it's against their will. It's because when he reveals himself to them, it changes their will. It changes their mind. It changes their heart. They are not the person they were before God reveals himself to them. And that revelation draws them to him. So Billy Graham, I think, made a, he maybe, hopefully he, he changed his mind about some of that later in his life. That was in 1966 when he wrote that in the Standard Bearer Baptist publication. And he says that uh, he's made it possible for all men to be saved. I would like anybody to show me in the Bible where salvation is a possibility. You see, if salvation is only a possibility, it's possible that nobody would be saved. Now, when the angel announced to Joseph, the husband of Mary, your wife is expecting a child. She has not been with another man. But that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will do his dead level best to save his people. He'll try to save his people. He'll make an effort. And if they'll just let him know, he says, he shall save his people from their sins. Well, was he successful or not? I think he was. Spurgeon said this, though. Wesley, they say, I mean, John Wesley lived to be about 90 years of age. How many of you have ever heard of, uh, I know some of you have, but some of you haven't, uh, have ever heard of uh, George Whitfield or Whitefield? Okay, George Whitfield was an Augustinian. He was a sovereign grace guy. And I've got books with correspondence between Whitfield and Wesley. When Wesley and Whitfield went to school, Whitfield came from a very poor, poor family. The Wesleys came from a well-to-do family. And when they were in school, George Whitfield shined their shoes. And later, Whitfield was called the man who shook two continents. If you've ever heard about the so-called Great Awakening over here under Jonathan Edwards, the seeds were laid for the Great Awakening by George Whitfield. Then he went back to Europe, and the same thing happened over there. That's why he's called the man that shook two continents. Well, anyway, getting back to Wesley. Somebody said to Mr. Spurgeon, what's the statement? And I'm going to have to close with this. The statement I'm making is, 
I believe that men and women will be in heaven who were wrong on some doctrines. Because it's not exactly what you know. We can't separate what we know from who we know. But it's not exactly what you know, but it's who you're trusting. So somebody said to Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, do you think you will see John Wesley in heaven? And Mr. Spurgeon said, quote, I don't think so. He'll be so close to the throne, I won't be able to see him. <laughs> well, that's graciousness on the part of Spurgeon. We don't know who's going to be in heaven. We can't guarantee he's going to be in heaven except to say, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the promise that he will save you and that he will be, you will be with him in heaven. Now I'm going to close with having you look at a passage. I'll pick it up next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The time flies when we're having a good time in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what Paul says, beginning in verse 11. No other foundation can a man lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. If any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day, the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ, shall declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Now that is a very, very gracious statement. And he says that you might, or I might, or many of our friends and brothers and sisters might really be believers in Christ, but they may be building on wood, hay, or stubble. But they will be saved, yet so as by fire. We should not send men and women to hell because they differ with us. We shouldn't send men and women to heaven because they agree with us. Every tub must sit on its own bottom. The Lord only knows the heart. And the Lord has not left it up to us to judge such things. He is the judge. And every man stands or falls before his own master. We're going to stop there. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that you have saved us by your grace. We believe your promises that whosoever believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We pray that this nation will be turned 
and called by your spirit to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he's near. And Father, we pray that you will enable us to be bright and shining lights in these days of wickedness and these days of darkness, that we might lift up the blood-stained banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and we might leave no doubt that the only way in the world a dead sinner can be reconciled unto you is by your sovereign grace. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our error. Forgive us, Lord, of our mistakes. And teach us that we might rightly divide the word of truth. We thank you for these brothers and sisters who are here tonight. who have taken the time out to hear your word and to sit and to study together with us that you bless them and strengthen them and multiply their kind in this day and age that our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen.